Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. In fact, this is the 53rd weekly episode of the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. Hard to believe we've done that many already over a year now, but it's been a great time doing it. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week I take you on a trip down memory lane, back 50 years, and we report on the hockey and sporting news from that time period. In this episode, we're looking at the week of October 25th to October 31st, 1970. This is the part in the show where I usually like to plug our our two sponsors uh, who enable us to keep this thing going. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive, And they give us access to thousands and thousands of newspapers that enable us to find all that news from the 1970s. We couldn't do this without them. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Colborne, Ontario, just steps from the Welland Canal and a couple blocks from Lake Erie. The folks at the Breakwall make outstanding craft beers and have some of the best pub food on the planet. And if we can ever start getting together again like we used to before, I'd love to meet any of our listeners or folks who follow us on Twitter at the Breakwall in Port Coburn for a burger or a pizza and a beer. We also want to remind you about our new Patreon account and welcome our two newest subscribers, Rick Carter and Tom Farlow. Thanks so much, guys. You're helping us keep the lights on here, and we hope you're enjoying the bonus content that we're putting out, and we have some really neat stuff in the hopper coming out soon. Some of the items we're working on include a very in-depth look on how the media covered the death of Terry Sawchuk uh, with my own perspective as a uh, former police detective. We also have full interviews with some very interesting hockey people, some of whose careers covered from the early 1950s right up to the 21st century, and we'll have much more as well. Go to patreon.com slash hockey50years to donate and help us keep things going. Uh, On a bit of a a personal note, I just wanted to add this week. Uh, As many of you know, uh, one of my very good friends is is former Maple Leaf goalie Eddie Chadwick. Ed, you know, is the last Toronto goalkeeper who was able to play every game in an NHL season. And he did that for two years in a row in 1956-57 and 57-58. Ed spent many years after his playing days as a coach and general manager, scout, goalie coach in several organizations, including his last 18 years of his working life with the Edmonton Oilers, where he got five Stanley Cup rings. Ed now lives in Fort Erie, Ontario, and this week he underwent knee replacement surgery. Now, at 87 years old, in the middle of a pandemic, that's a pretty gutsy move by a guy. But if you know Ed like I do, you understand that he was entirely capable of pulling that off. And of course, he did. He's back home now. He's recuperating. And although he did tell me we might have to wait until next spring to start booking tea times. Ed's back. I'm glad to have him back around. We're going to get together pretty soon. And uh, in the meantime, we're so happy to see that Ed Chadwick is doing well after surgery. Last week, we had a pretty uh, pretty uh, interesting show, I thought. We had a great look 
at how the city of Buffalo's early days in professional hockey looked and some of the history of the Sabres' home when they entered the NHL, the Memorial Auditorium lovingly called the odd. We had news on more dysfunction around the Oakland Seals as rumors began to surface that General Manager Frank Selke Jr. was going to be shown the door by owner Charles O'Finley. And we got to know the player whom Buffalo Sabres General Manager Punch Imlach labeled as another Davy Keon. But the fact that few fans knew we were talking about Randy Wyrosub was the best indicator that he probably wasn't going to be another Keon. Well, for this week's show, it was a really busy week on the ice and off the ice in the NHL. We have the results of some of the key games that took place. Uh, we'll also talk about these stories. More, more talk about dissension and dysfunction on the Detroit Red Wing as Gordy Howe is permanently returned to the forward line. We have a, an item about a National Hockey League all-time great getting arrested. Uh, we'll tell you about that and how they made it go away. And trade rumors were big news this week. Several NHL teams were said to be on the brink of making significant swaps. We'll tell you who the players are and what teams were involved. First up this week, we have some of uh, the week's more significant game results. And the first one we want to talk about was the very first meeting between the 1972 expansion teams, the Buffalo Sabres and the Vancouver Canucks. That first game took place on Canada's left coast in Vancouver. And while one might expect that the two new teams would be fairly evenly matched in this first game between the two clubs, that was hardly the case. The Canucks cruised to an embarrassingly for the Sabres easy 7-2 win over Buffalo before a crowd of 15,068 at the Pacific Coliseum. The Sabres were only really in this game until about the halfway point of the first period after which Vancouver scored three quick goals and basically that was all she wrote. The Vancouver scores in that first period, Len Lundy, Dale Talon, and Rosaire Paymop. After Randy Wyrosub, hmm, where have we heard that name before? Got the Sabres on the board with his first National Hockey League goal early in the second period. Vancouver upped their lead to 5-1 to one with goals by Mike Corrigan and Wayne Mackey. And for Mackey, in this early part of the NHL season, that was already his sixth of the year. Andre Boudria made it 6-1 to one for Vancouver early in the final frame before Wyrosa again, acting very much like the next Dave Keon, scored for Buffalo, but that was as close as it was going to get. Barry Wilkins scored his second of the year at 12.30 of the third to round out the scoring and make the final 7-2 for Vancouver. And by the way, Wilkins is the guy who scored the very first goal in Vancouver Canucks history. And if you've been listening, you would know that we've talked about that. Vancouver had a very wide edge in the territorial play in this one, as would be indicated by their 39-30 margin over Buffalo with shots on goal. At one point in the second period, 
it seemed like they were shooting almost at will on Sabres goalie Roger Crozier. And if Roger had sued his mates for non-support in this one, there isn't a judge in the world who would have turned down that suit. At times, it seemed as if Buffalo was dazed and confused with no idea how to execute a defensive game plan, that is, if they even had one. They could uh, maybe put it up to jet lag, maybe put it up to the change in time zones, I don't know, but the Sabres were not in this game. Little Charlie Hodge was in goal for Vancouver in this one, and he was very sharp. Uh, one of his better games in this early part of the season. The first period was where Charlie really came through. The Sabres actually outshot Vancouver 13-10 in the first, but most of those shots came before the 10-minute mark when the roof fell in for the Sabres. This game also marked the first head-to-head -head matchup between Buffalo's heralded rookie Gilbert Perot and the Canucks' Dale Talon, who was picked second in last June's amateur draft behind Perot. This round decidedly went to Talon, who had a very strong game, and that goal he scored was his first in the NHL, and Dale spoke about it afterwards. It just felt fantastic, was Talon's first comment. He said he thought that when he shot it, someone actually tipped the puck into the net and he thought, oh no, that's not my first. After the game, Talon was also asked what he thought about Gilbert Perot, and he had a pretty interesting response to that question. Players uh, back in those days weren't really coached in the media to be media savvy like they are now, uh, where they just give you tired old cliches. Listen to what... Uh, I don't have the tape, but I do have a transcript of what he said to reporters about Perot. Talon starts by saying he played real well against us in junior hockey the first time we played them and in the last game. In between last year, he didn't do much. Dale was talking about their matchups, both played in the OHA Junior A series in the 69-70 season. Talon went on to say, but he's a nice player, I'd like to play with him. Boy, I just give him the puck and go. I don't think he likes getting checked too much, but he's really nice to watch. When he makes that big circle and starts a big rush, it's just beautiful. I used to love watching him from the bench, that is. Ah, Dale went on to say, when you're number two, you try harder. Dale was, of course, referring to the fact he'll forever be known as the number two choice in the 1970 amateur draft. But at least on this night in Vancouver, Dale Talon was number one. On Wednesday evening at Maple Leaf Gardens, it was the Maple Leafs and Canadians in a classic matchup, or at least <laughs> what would have been a classic matchup in days long gone by. Both teams have recently fallen on hard times. Neither was a playoff contender last season. This year, the Habs have high hopes of returning to the National Hockey League Stanley Cup Spring Tournament. And the Leafs, well, they do carry similar aspirations, mainly because of the presence of the two National League expansion teams in the Eastern Division and the powerful Chicago Blackhawks moving out west. Realistically, however, 
The Leafs would look nothing like a team that could finish in the top four in the division. Well, the Habs, they have shown some improvement this year, but the losses of John Ferguson and Ralph Backstrom to retirement have left them with what appears to be very little depth on the forward lines. At least it seems that way in this young 1970-71 season. So Wednesday night at the Gardens before the usual packed house in what had to be an unexpected turn of events, the Leafs lambasted Cahabs by a convincing 6-2 to score and no one saw that coming. Leafs led 2-1 at the end of the first on goals by Jimmy Harrison and Bill McMillan. Ivan Cornway had the uh, Montreal goal sandwiched between those two. Montreal got as close as they would ever get in this one when Guy Chiron's first NHL goal tied it up in the second period and that was the only goal in the middle 20 minutes. It could have been much worse for Toronto in the second period as the Habs outshot the Leafs 15-7 to and it was only the standout goalkeeping of Jacques Plante that kept Toronto from falling far far behind in this one and Plante's work actually gave the Leafs a chance at two points which they took advantage of in the third period. Plante continually frustrated the Montreal attack turning aside shot after shot and almost uh, performing as an extra defenseman as Jacques had been known to do. He even intercepted a number of Montreal passes as they neared the cage he was tasked with guarding and that really frustrated a lot of Montreal players. Jacques even ventured outside the goal crease to battle Habs forwards for loose pucks laying a couple of rather gentle body checks on the pacifist Canadian attackers. This alone was a clear demonstration on how much Montreal is going to miss and is missing John Ferguson. If Fergie had been in this game, Plant would have had a much more significant threat to consider on his forays outside the goal crease. Toronto came out flying in the final 20 minutes, probably buoyed by the fact that they had escaped a very bad second period, no worse than tied. Ron Ellis scored the first of four Leaf goals in the final frame when he finally netted his first of the season just 3-11 into the period. Only 17 seconds after that, Guy Trache would follow up with his second goal of the year and suddenly the route was on. Dave Keon scored at 11.08 to make it 5-2 and Normie Ullman added the sixth Toronto goal at 13.27 to give the Leafs an insurmountable 6-2 lead. Montreal seemed to realize that as well as they mustered basically no threat against the Toronto club the rest of the way. As good as Plant was in goal for Toronto, Montreal netminder Rogie Vashon paled in comparison. He looked pretty weak on three of the Leafs' third period goals, although it must be mentioned that he received very little support from a Montreal defense that seems to be crying out at this time for some veteran leadership or even anything closely resembling that. A side note on this night, Ron Ellis, very happy 
to score his first goal of the season. He'd been struggling, or at least you could say pressing. But Ron was happy for another reason. He and his wife have been planning since the summer to adopt a child, and tomorrow they will be taking their daughter to their home to stay with them for the very first time. And while Ron Ellis was happy, Jacques Plante was completely jubilant to win a game against the team for whom he toiled for so many great seasons, of course winning five consecutive Stanley Cups in the 1950s. Plant said, I can't believe it, the whole team played so well. How can we be so good in one game and so poorly another night? Plant went on to say that this is the way that this Maple Leafs team has to play. All the guys were taking their men out and the key was they kept skating. Habs coach Claude Ruel, always good for a quote, uh, laid blame everywhere except himself, as coaches usually do. Ruel does it more than others. But listen to the way he commented on this game. Ruel said, if you take stupid penalties, if you let guys like Mike Walton, Keon, and Ellis skate, you deserve to lose. You must outskate and outwork them. We played the second period we were moving, but when you wait for the puck to come to you the way we did in the first and third, kind of trailed off after that. Ruel refused to comment by name on Rogi Vashon's goaltending. When asked about the netminders' rather shaky third period performance, all Ruel would say was, you saw the game right what you saw. Coming to the defense of his goaltender, not quite. The final game of the week we want to look at was Thursday evening when the Red Wings, suddenly an effective team at least for one game, upset the visiting Boston Bruins, yes, those big bad Bruins, by a 5-3 score at the Olympia in Detroit. The Red Wings put it all together for probably what was the first time this season and it was no coincidence that the line of Alex Delvecchio between Frank Mahovlich and Gordy Howe reunited in the previous game was the main reason for the big win, a win that the Detroit club desperately needed to have. While the big line did most of the scoring, they had four of the five goals, it was true that the other units displayed more verve than any previous Red Wing game this month. And they did this all before the largest crowd in Detroit so far this season, 14,335 screaming Red Wings fans. Three times Detroit took the lead in this game, finally holding it on their final try. Red Wings led 2-0 after only 3 minutes and 30 seconds on goals by Delvecchio and Mahavlich, but the Bruins roared right back to not the score less than 3 minutes later when Phil Esposito and Andy Westfall got pucks behind Detroit goalie Roy Edwards. Red Wings went up 3-2 at 8-10 of the middle frame, but that lead didn't last either with Don Marcotte tying it for Boston once again in quick order less than a minute later. The eventual game winner was potted by Del Vecchio, his second of the night at 538 of the third, and Gordy Howe added an insurance marker at 1114. Roy Edwards shut the door on the Bruins the rest of the way to give the Wings a game that was as much of a must-win as any game could be this early in the season. The game was notable for a couple of other reasons as well. 
Del Vecchio's goals were his 400th and 401st career markers, and I can tell you not many have reached that lofty total. One who has was his linemate Howe, of course, and the assist he got on the goal by Mahovlic was incredibly the 1,000th assist of his illustrious National Hockey League career. And no one has ever amassed so many helpers over a career as we look at the game in 1970. No one. As we've mentioned, Howell was moved up the last few games from defense to right wing. And Ned Harkness, the coach, grudgingly admitted that Howell will remain on the forward line because that's where we need him. But he was quick to add, Gordy just loved playing defense. I'm still looking for comments where Gordy says he just loved it. Gordy's a good soldier. He didn't complain. But you know where Gordy's heart would lie. And that would be, of course, on the right wing. And that leads us to a little bit of a discussion on the Detroit situation right now. In these kinds of times when things are really sounding bad, history tells us it's rarely as bad as the scribes in the papers would have you believe, just as it's never as good as you think it is when things are going really well. But in Detroit these days, There seems to be a rancid odor emitting from the area of the Detroit front office and something untoward is definitely going on there. And that's unsurprising whenever any endeavor is run by one of the Norris brothers. History tells us that as well. Seems there's always something nasty lurking in the background when the Norrises are involved and historians who have studied the National Hockey League will tell you that there are many examples over the years. The week began of course with the Red Wings struggling and Captain Alex Del Vecchio conducted a players only meeting in which coach Ned Harkness had to be told to leave and he was reportedly livid at this development. In fact, he was so upset the next day, he started conducting a series of meetings himself. He had one with general manager Abel, another one with unnamed persons that probably included Bruce Norris and the mysterious James Bishop, and then Harkness had a meeting of his own with the players. All these meetings seemed to have a positive effect on the team, at least on the players, as they went out and managed to tie with another team that admittedly seems to be on a downslide Montreal but later in the week the Rangers took him out easily by a 4-1 score the night before they came back and upset at Boston and while all this was going on general manager Sid Abel was busy trying to acquire players who might improve the team's play and Detroit free press columnist and hockey reporter Jack Berry had this assessment of the Red Wings trade prospects and some comments on Harkness, and these comments are not way out of line. Barry wrote, Ned Harkness is the new coach, and he doesn't like looking bad. He's never had a team that lost as many games as the Red Wings have already lost. He never had a penalty for too many men on the ice in the college games he coached, but that has happened three times already this season. Uh, Jack is mentioning maybe Ned is a little out of his element, maybe in over his head, trying to coach at the speed of NHL games. 
Barry went on to write, Harkness is mad. He didn't expect to win every game the way he did at Cornell, but he sure didn't expect to lose so many so soon. So Barry asked the question, what can the Red Wings do? Who could they trade to get a player or players who might make a difference? Would they trade Mahovlich or Gary Bergman, who's their best defenseman? Would they trade the rising young superstar, Gary Unger, who looks like he's going to be butting heads with Harkness on a regular basis? They had a chance to trade Unger for Derek Sanderson in the summer, and they turned down the offer. They could really use a Sanderson type of player right now. Sanderson, of course, is tough, aggressive, and good. But he'd get along with Ned Harkness a lot like the Hatfields get along with the McCoys. The point is, according to Barry, it's easier to say changes will be made than it is to make meaningful changes. Threatening often and doing nothing is like the boy crying wolf. The Red Wings have cried wolf too often all many this season, already this season, and teams are going to be reluctant to do anything to help this team while they're down. Sid Abel told Jack Barry that he'd been talking to a couple of teams, but that no trades would materialize until he had a chance to talk to owner Bruce Norris. Now that could indicate a couple of things. One, that the deals being considered are of such a major variety and significant enough to warrant owner involvement. Or it could mean that Abel's hands are tied and even a minor move has to be run by Norris, who is sure to consult with his boy Bishop and his other boy Harkness. And it seems to us that this Bishop guy seems to have a lot of influence with the owner and he might be running things in the background. Sid Abel may be nothing more than a figurehead in the Detroit front office and that would be a damn shame. By Friday, Sid Abel said that he did have a deal in place. He had talked to Bruce Norris about it. It was a substantial deal, but there was something that was holding it up. Well, by Saturday, we learned the something that was holding it up was that it was a trade with the New York Rangers and center Peter Stemkowski was part of the deal, but he was refusing to report to the Rangers. Jack Berry was unable to determine who the Rangers would send to Detroit, but uh, Berry did ferret out the information that it was Stemkowski who didn't want to leave the Red Wings. Well, the Toronto Star in their Saturday edition did manage to get the names of the Rangers who would go to Detroit. They were young center Don Luce and defenseman Larry Brown would be the Wings' uh, new players in exchange for Stemmer. You know, it seems these days that the Red Wing players aren't willing to cooperate with team management even when they're given a chance to escape the sinking ship, the mess that the Red Wings had become and move to a surefire contender. At least that's what it looks like in Stemkowski's case. There'll be a lot more on this Detroit mess as time goes on in the coming weeks. While the Red Wings were trying to make inroads on the trade market, they weren't the only team working on player transactions as rumors were swirling in several National Hockey League cities. With things going badly in Toronto, it's a natural move for the Maple Leafs writers to begin speculating on possible deals Toronto writers never met a trade rumor they didn't like. And who better to ask than the players who might be involved in such deals? 
Red Burnetta, the star, went to the Leafs' Mike Walton, whose name has long been the subject of trade rumors, and Mike did not shy away from the question, but he didn't uh, lay blame on the Leafs' plate on either coach John McClellan or Jim Gregory, and he didn't talk about being traded, which was a question he was asked. He told Red Burnett, that he really wasn't opposed to moving from center to left or right wing and take a turn on the point on the power play. That was the move he was comfortable with. He skirted the issue of the trade rumors very adroitly. One Toronto writer, Dan Proudfoot of the Globe and Mail, talked about trades as well, but it was a trade that took place last summer that caught Dan's eye. He uh, looked into the deal that sent Murray Oliver from the Maple Leafs to the North Stars in one of those transactions that listed future consideration as the return going to the Maple Leafs. Toronto never bothered to announce what they were receiving for the veteran Murray Oliver, and that's a very curious move. If you know Jim Gregory, Jim would always have a press conference and he would keep people well informed in the deals that he made. Well, Mr. Proudfoot had a look at the brand new, just issued National Hockey League uh, record and guide and noticed that that esteemed publication had the details of the Oliver trade. The Leafs acquired forwards Terry O'Malley and Brian Conacher, whom they owned originally, as payment for Oliver from the North Stars. Neither of these guys were ever likely to play for the Leafs again while Oliver was doing a decent job with the North Stars. And you say, why would Jim Gregory make a deal like that? Well, the fact that it was never announced and the fact that they got so little in return for a useful National Hockey League veteran tells me that Jim Gregory did not make that trade. Another example of owner meddling in a general manager's duties. The Oliver trade has Stafford Smythe's fingerprints all over it. Smythe at a sports banquet in the spring before the deal labeled Oliver a loser. Basically said he didn't want him on the team and a week or so later Murray was gone. You would think that Stafford Smythe when he sees the results of the crap that he pulls would let his own people do their the work that he pays them to do. But Smythe's ego is bigger than the number of dollars he uh, apparently failed to pay the Canadian tax people. And he's going to do whatever he wants. And that will be to the detriment of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Still with the Leafs and trade rumors, there's a lot of that going on this week. Ron Ellis's name came up. Uh, as he was uh, about to be, according to several papers, traded to the Boston Bruins. Well, this really upset Ron terribly. But Coach John McClellan called Ellis aside at the practice on Monday morning and in the presence of Red Burnett said that, I understand you've been given uh, uh, word that there's a possible trade involving you. McClellan told Ellis that is not going to happen. It wasn't even being considered and it wasn't even discussed. 
McClellan went on to tell Ellis he was staying with the Leafs now and forever. And in this case, as history would show us, John McClellan was certainly telling the truth. Smythe, of course, was upset that rumors were getting out, which lends credence to the fact that there possibly could be something going on with Ron Ellis. And he wouldn't tell the coach or his general manager because McClellan and Gregory did talk a lot. Smythe said that the rumor that upset him was that the Leafs were going to send Ellis to the Boston Bruins for defenseman Ted Green. Smythe said, there's no way in the world we would trade Ellis. But yet he was upset that word got out. Another tip that was given reporters was that ex-Maple Leaf and Red Wing defenseman Carl Brewer, who retired on the eve of training camp this year again, hinted during a visit to Montreal that he was considering coming back to the NHL once again, but not likely with Detroit. Brewer said on Tuesday night that there was no truth to the rumor that he had already met with the Maple Leafs and that he was extremely reticent to come back to the NHL despite what people were saying around around the league. And later in the week, there was talk of yet another Leafs trade in the works and the rumors were so strong Again, it it got into the papers in Boston with a, a headline that a deal with the Leafs and Bruins featured would be completed by the following Monday. This was by the end of this week. One of the stories uh, had a three-way trade happening involving Boston, Detroit, and Toronto. And one writer in Boston claimed it was just hours away. Jim Gregory did admit He's called nine National Hockey League GMs to talk trade because the Leafs do need help, but he insisted that neither Dave Keon nor Ellis was the subject of any of those conversations. Jim also said he called the 10th NHL GM as well, Punch Imlach, but the Sabres uh, mentor did not return his calls. John Ahern in the Boston Globe went so far on Saturday as the week was coming to an end to say that the he had names of the possible deal that would be done by Monday uh, between Boston and Toronto. The names mentioned by Ahern in the story were again Ron Ellis, Ken Hodge of the Bruins, and of course Derek Sanderson. Ahern wrote that the second time around, there's always an alternate list. Sanderson was supposed to go to Toronto for Mike Walton. And then it was Ken Hodge for Mike Walton. And then Ken Hodge from Mike Walton and Jim McKenney. And then Eddie Westfall, Dallas Smith, Ace Bailey, Bill Spear, Danny Schock, and Wayne Carton. Any one of them for Walton, McKenney, and any two of those, or even other players, or maybe it was a three-for-three three deal. Ahern was just throwing whatever he could at the wall to see what would stick. Now, you wonder how these things get started. Well, the probabilities of a swap between these two teams were fanned because there were a lot of visits to Toronto by Bruins general manager Milt Schmidt over the previous couple of weeks. And on Thursday night, when the Bruins lost to Detroit, Schmidt was there with his team, and so were Jim Gregory and Johnny McClellan. They flew back to Toronto right after the morning of the game, and it was reported that they had further discussions with Schmidt. 
Ahern ended his article by talking about what the Toronto media, and I think he took this from all three of the main Toronto papers, uh, of what a deal could look like between Toronto and Boston. He said Leafs that could head to Boston were Mike Walton, Jim McKenney, Norm Ullman, and Paul Henderson. And going to Toronto, Don Ory, Garnet, Ace Bailey, Ken Hodge, Don Marcotte, Billy Spear, and a youngster by the name of Frank Spring. And out in Vancouver, there were trade rumors as well, and general manager Bud Poyle had to go on record to quickly quell a rumor floating around in Vancouver that Ralph Backstrom, the retired center of the Montreal Canadiens, had been or was about to be traded to the Canucks. What sparked all the flap was Backstrom himself told a reporter in a telephone interview that he and his family were moving to the West Coast, and if he were to return to hockey, he would have to give Vancouver strong consideration. Well, of course, uh, nothing like a good rumor to really get the readership up in the local paper, but sometimes you have to dig a little bit to find out what's really going on. Ralph Backstrom is thinking about taking a job in Vancouver with a brokerage firm out there as he endeavors to forge a life outside of hockey. Now, the word got out somehow that he was talking to a firm in Vancouver and he was asked by a Montreal writer about a move west and in answer to a question, he gave a very honest reply. If he were already living in BC, working in private industry, the Canucks might be an attractive addition to his full-time job. Bud Poyle, of course, said he knew nothing of any deal for Backstrom, and it wasn't even something that he had discussed with Montreal at all, and given the circumstances, that makes sense. Bud wants to make sure he's not being accused of of tampering in, in this instance, and we believe Bud Poyle wasn't here. Backstrom, by the way, was contacted by writers in Vancouver and confirmed that as far as he was concerned, there was nothing to that story, which, by the way, was in the Montreal Star. Before the end of the week, of course, all the Vancouver papers and many other papers, even the Canadian press, were carrying stories about Ralph Backstrom wanting to go to Vancouver when that was a a story that just snowballed out of control. Ralph never said that other than he wanted to go to Vancouver for reasons other than what involved hockey. But Tom Watt of the Vancouver province said by the end of the week that the Canucks certainly could have Ralph Backstrom if they wanted him, and the price would only be a couple of draft picks. But that was a price Bud Poyle would or should be unwilling to meet. We have a few uh, news and notes uh, to close out the week's news. Doug Harvey former National Hockey League star pleaded guilty this week to a charge of carrying a concealed weapon without a permit and he was given by the judge a suspended sentence. Doug, who's 45 for many years, uh, the best defenseman in hockey with the Montreal Canadiens, was arrested at Uplands Airport at about 4.30 a.m. when an RCMP constable found a loaded revolver in Doug's briefcase. The police explained that an examination of the briefcase was pretty routine in light of the uh, early hour of the day when the airport is 
pretty much deserted, and of course, with increased security precautions prompted by the terrorist kidnap and murder of Quebec Labour Minister Pierre Laporte and the kidnap of British trade envoy James Cross. Harvey said two other persons had flown in a private plane to Ottawa from Montreal at about 1 a.m. Wednesday, and according to police, were on the town for drinks and Chinese food. Why not? Now, Harvey said he was carrying the gun for personal protection after he was assaulted while running unsuccessfully for a city council seat in the Montreal civic elections, what took place this past Sunday. Now, Doug in the election, as we mentioned, was assaulted, and that was true. It wasn't a serious assault. He was running as a candidate for the recently organized Montreal Party, a very conservative uh, party that is trying to get a bigger uh, voice in the Montreal Town Council. And during these days of the October crisis in Quebec, this upset a lot of separatists or people leaning away from the conservative uh, point of view and Doug was assaulted so he acquired the firearm just to keep himself safe while he was in Montreal. Doug by the way lost the election to uh, James M. Bellin of the Civic Party. Uh, Bellin had 19,377 votes. Doug 5,100 in 89. The uh, person who represented Doug at his uh, court appearance was Jake Dunlop. Now, Jake is a former CFL player for the Ottawa Rough Riders and Toronto Argonauts, and he got his law degree, and he uh, went to court with Doug, and he was the one who got the charges and the punishment suspended. A little more hockey and court news for you. Blake Dunlop is a young forward with the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Ottawa 67s. Well, this past weekend, he was arrested by the cops and charged with possession of marijuana and hashish. Blake was uh, taken into custody, immediately appeared in court, and immediately pled guilty and was fined $50. Claude Provo is at a whirlwind autumn, I would say. He retired from Montreal Canadiens, was then appointed a player-slash-assistant coach with the American Hockey League Montreal Voyagers. Claude didn't like that role, and he left that job. Just wasn't his cup of tea, nothing wrong with that. Now he's landed as the full-time coach of the Rosemount Nationals of the Quebec Junior A League, and we wish Claude all the best in this new endeavor. Here's an interesting uh, story out of Alberta. The Red Deer Alberta Chamber of Commerce is going to ask the province to approve a $25,000 sweepstakes slash lottery, whatever you want to call it, based on the results of the National Hockey League Stanley Cup playoffs this year. NHL President Clarence Campbell is, to say the least, upset with the idea and he has gone on record quite publicly as opposing the use of the NHL's name in this manner and he has referred the matter to league lawyers who plan on putting a stop to this bid to run a lottery in Alberta based on NHL results. Ever hear a pro line? Not 50 years ago they hadn't. 
And Andy Bathgate, uh, still not 100% convinced. He signed with the Penguins, but he isn't really feeling it in Pittsburgh, he says. He feels that his role with the team is at best undefined, or at least not clearly defined enough that he might uh, just pick up and leave the team. Now, Coach Red Kelly wants Andy to take uh, some time to think about it. He thinks Andy can help the offensively challenged Penguins score some goals. Andy's just not so sure. He doesn't think this team has uh, the stuff to make a run at the Stanley Cup, and that's what Andy would really want. That's what all NHL players, I think, really want. Now, here's where it gets kind of interesting. Andy wants to play in the Western Hockey League for the Phoenix Roadrunners. Why Phoenix? Well, it seems Andy has been doing some negotiating on a different level on his own, and he says that he has a chance to buy into the team and become a part owner of the Phoenix Roadrunners. Now, Andy says if he were to do this, he would very happily remain Penguins property, and if the Pittsburgh club runs into any injury problems, Andy would be there to fill in, but he would take his regular shifts in the Western Hockey League with Phoenix. Interesting concept, Andy Bathgate, part team owner. You never know, it could happen. So that is our show this week, everyone. And what did we learn in this final seven days of the month of October 1970? Well, we learned that changes could be coming to the Detroit Red Wings, but what they might entail was very clear, very unclear. What was clear is that it really wasn't clear who was running the Detroit Red Wings these days. A National Hockey League all-time great got arrested, sort of, Things turned out just fine for Doug Harvey. A charge of carrying a concealed weapon uh, resulted in a suspended sentence. Doug had nothing nefarious going on there. He had really strong grounds to have the weapon to uh, protect himself, although he probably should have gone through the proper channels. And in 1970, those proper channels were murky at best. And it seemed the majority of the news this week Uh, concerned trade rumors swirling around uh, any number of NHL teams and there were some pretty big names that were out there uh, possibly being moved and something will probably come up. The 70-71 season looks like it could be a season that will result in some very important players being moved around the NHL. Now, next week, we have uh, some pretty interesting stuff coming up as well. There will be a couple of trades completed, and uh, we'll talk about those and more rumors. There will be news on the Stafford Smythe income tax case, and and that's something that's pretty interesting. You'll want to get that. And National Hockey League defenseman Bobby Bond is about to have a very busy week and we'll tell you all about that and as usual we'll have all the big game results and news and notes from around the hockey world 
The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. We can't thank him enough for his hard work. Andy's a real pro. He does a wonderful job with this podcast. And Andy is now in the business of producing podcasts for anyone who needs some help. Uh, get a hold of me. I'll put you in contact with Andy. And he can put something together that will give you a very uh, strong and unique voice on the internet by way of a professionally produced podcast. Our music comes from the uh, Toronto indie rock group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, who is in the studio producing a new CD as we speak. Other music in the show and sound effects are by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files from the Toronto Star, Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course, the many fine publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us every day on Twitter at at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We have a WordPress site as well, Hockey50YearsAgo.com, where we give news on the podcast. You can get this podcast anywhere where fine podcasts can be downloaded, and we are on uh, YouTube as well these days. Thanks again to everyone who tunes into the show, and on that note, we will see you next week. When the ice-